Today, we're going to be continuing our lesson series on the doctrine of prayer. Two weeks ago, when we started this lesson, so we talked about basically the, the basic fundamentals of what prayer is. Now, one of the things that, that I mentioned before diving into that definition of prayer was I spent time talking about what prayer is not. And if you recall, what I mentioned in regards to what prayer was not was, one, prayer was not a means to force God to do what we want. You know, this is an error we see oftentimes within charismatic word of faith circles um, to where prayer is assumed to be a means by which we're directing the will of God. And we know as Christians that is certainly not the case because we cannot thwart God's will. Nor is prayer a mindless or heartless ritual, something by which you're just saying something without giving any thought to it. Nor was prayer talk therapy. Something in which you're just kind of talking through your problems as though God was a therapist. That is not what prayer is. Rather, what we saw is that prayer, and again, if you recall, this definition is basically just a combination of what we find in our larger and shorter catechism. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ by the help of his Holy Spirit with confession of our sins, and a thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That is what prayer is. And last time we spoke, we went um, line by line, really looking at in detail what each of those points meant. So I will not belabor the point here. But what I'd like to do today is first and foremost, start off by reading to you four verses that we find in the scriptures. Let's start first by this passage found in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 149, verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Do you believe this passage? How about this one? Proverbs 10, verse 24. What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Do you believe this passage? Or how about this? Matthew 7, verses 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Do you honestly believe what Jesus is saying here? Well, how about this? In 1 John 5, verses 14 through 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Do you believe this passage? We just read four passages from the Bible that are pretty clear regarding God answering our prayers and granting our desires through prayer. However, I truly wonder whether that is something that we really believe. Do we really believe that our prayer is efficacious? Or to put it in a less technical way, do we really believe that our prayer matters? If God is sovereign and in control over all things, so many people will say, then what's the point of praying? 
If God has ordained the end from the beginning and nothing is able to thwart his sovereign plan, then why are we wasting our time praying? It's not like we're going to change what God has decreed. Well, today I want to spend my time talking about the power of prayer. While all of us here being Reformed, being Presbyterian, would acknowledge the sovereignty of God, we must also acknowledge the power of prayer. Our prayer to God is not meaningless babble that does not do anything. Our prayer is able to change things. Through prayer, we are able to receive those things which we ask God for. Now, unfortunately, we live in a society where the charismatic movement has so dominated Christian thought that many of us have overreacted to the point where we are afraid to omit truths that the Bible teaches. For example, the Bible says, ask and you shall receive. See, the word of faith people didn't add that to the Bible. They just twisted its meaning. The Bible says in Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. See, the word of faith people did not add that to the Bible. They just completely destroyed its meaning. You know, what we do with these verses a lot of times is a lot is very similar to what modern feminists do with men and masculinity. What do I mean by that? You know, because so many of them, they don't want for men to embrace what will actually be toxic masculinity and become abusive. So any trace of masculinity that they find in men, they reflexively just reject as toxic. Likewise, because we don't want for people to fall into the heresy of word of faith, sometimes we can reflexively downplay verses like what I just read. But see, we can't do that. Because I've said this countless times, but it bears repeating. The Christian walk is one of balance. There is a road that we are walking where there's ditches on both ends. And it's so easy to swerve into one ditch, overcorrect, and then swerve to the ditch on the other end. And as Christians, we have to make sure that we maintain balance at all times. And this includes how we think about prayer. Now, obviously... We don't want to start encouraging people to speak into existence, to name it and claim it, to blab it and grab it, as though their mere words had some sort of magical power. But we also don't want to embrace a thinking that discourages people from being confident in their prayer. Think about it. I mean, what is the point of praying to God if you don't even believe that God will answer you? What's the point of praying to God if you don't believe that your prayer will change your situation. Now, here is an interesting quote from someone we would all know. I'm not going to mention who it is. I just want you to hear what he says. What kind of prayer would this be? Oh, Lord, I am indeed doubtful whether or not thou art inclined to hear me. But being oppressed with anxiety, I fly to thee that if I am worthy, thou mayest assist me. None of the saints whose prayers are given in the scriptures thus supplicated, nor are we thus taught by the Holy Spirit who tells us to come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And elsewhere teaches us to have boldness and 
access with confidence by the faith of Christ. This confidence of obtaining what we ask, a confidence which the Lord commands, and all the saints teach by their example, we must therefore hold fast with both hands. If we would pray to any advantage, the only prayer acceptable to God is that which springs, if I may so express it, from this presumption of faith and is founded on the full assurance of hope. Now, this wasn't written by a Pentecostal. This was written by John Calvin in his institutes. And I want you to take into consideration what he's saying here in regards to the faith that we ought to have when it comes to prayer. So today, I want for you to truly understand the power and efficacy of prayer. Your prayer can change your situation. The Bible teaches us that, and you don't have to be afraid to believe that. Now, before we start diving into prayer's power, its efficacy, we have to first start by discussing some of the underlying items that prayer presupposes. And the reason I want to do this is because if we don't properly grasp those presuppositions, then we, one, we won't have a reason to believe that our prayers will accomplish anything, but two, then that's where we can start, you know, um, going off into bad ditches. The first presupposition or the first item that prayer presupposes is that God is really present, that he actually exists. And not only does it presuppose his existence, but it also presupposes that God is a person. For if God was not a person, we're not a person, what need would there be for us to communicate with him? We're not pantheists. Not only does prayer presuppose God's existence, it also presupposes that God controls all things. I mean, when we pray to God, we are many times asking for God to do something, whether it's to heal us, provide for us, keep us safe, or any other number of things. And the only way that our petitions to him would be meaningful is if God were able to actually do what we're asking him to do. If we're asking for God to heal us, then that means that God must have the ability to do so. If we're asking for God to provide for us, then that means that God must be able to provide for us. Thus, God has to be in control of all creation in order for us to be able to pray to him and to expect that our prayers will be answered by him. Not only that, not only is God in control of all creation, another thing that prayer presupposes is that our God is approachable. See, if we are called to pray to God, then that means that we are able to approach him. See, God isn't some distant and far off God that we are unable to communicate with. Our God isn't a God who is so busy that with everything else that he can't be bothered by our prayers. But rather, he is a God that we actually have the ability to talk with whenever we desire. See, we don't see in the scriptures something to the extent of, well, hey, if you want to pray to me and say you live in Asia Minor, you can only pray to me during the times of 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. Because, see, if you pray to me after around 930, I'm actually going to be pretty busy with the folks down in South Africa, so I won't have time to listen to you. Ah. We don't hear that at all. We don't see that at all. We can approach him at any time. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that our sins, as, I, as we mentioned last time we, um, I, I was here, have separated us from him. 
So it is through Christ that we have that confident access to him, that we are able to approach him. Not only that, but kind of in connection with this, in regards to what prayer presupposes, is that there is some relationship, some covenantal relationship that we do have with God. Just to give you an example, if Noel were to come to me and ask me to buy her a toy, which she does often, I'll respond to her with either a yes or a no. Now, if Eli, which obviously I am cool with you, Eli, but if you were to come to me and ask uh, me to buy you a toy, you know, I would probably tell you, might want to talk to your parents about that. You know, the fact that I have a unique father-daughter relationship with Noel makes me willing to spend time to listen to her requests. Not that I'm going to ignore you, Eli, but I think you know what I'm talking about. So. And I use you because you are the next youngest person here. So, <laughs> Now, don't forget that all of us who are believers are adopted into the family of God. And one of the privileges that we have is access to God through Christ. I mean, Paul reminds us of this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, where Paul writes, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So we have access to him. We are in relationship with him. And see, it's in light of those presuppositions there that we just looked at that one thing that ought to be clear if all of those things are true, is that our prayer is not a meaningless and ritualistic saying. Once you realize that God is real and that he is actively preserving, upholding, governing, and controlling all things, and that he is a God that is approachable through Christ, then there should be no doubting the power and efficacy of prayer. There is power in prayer. Prayer is efficacious. It can change things. The Apostle James, in his epistle, writes in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And listen to this. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he earnestly prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So we see in this passage that James gives us the efficacy, the power of prayer. Now again, because we do live in, in a church culture in America that is charismatic and we're inundated 
and TV, by the televangelists, by the, the name and claimant people that, again, we see passages like this. And what we don't want to do is do what we see so often happens, which is go into this word of faith, sinful presumption upon God. But as I mentioned, we cannot ignore this. James even says, he says, Elijah was a man like us with a nature like ours, a sinful nature like ours. And he prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain for three years and six months. Can't ignore passages like this that illustrate that to us. Now, I want to quickly look at a, you know, an example of in the scriptures of this efficacy, this power of prayer. And we and we'll find it in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, which obviously, because this is a lesson and not a sermon, I'm not gonna have time to read through all of this. Um, but in this, in this these two chapters, we read of an account that takes place between the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and the nation of Judah. Now, Sennacherib threatened to conquer and destroy Judah if they refused to submit to him. And he even gives examples of the nations that he conquered. Now, again, I won't have time to read his, you know, his threats, but you can find them in Isaiah chapter 36, verses 13 through 20, and Isaiah chapter 37, verses 8 through 13. The threats that he gave to the nation of Judah. Now, what's interesting, and what I want to point your eyes to, is the response of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, at that time. Because see, so often, whenever things like this take place, the reaction a lot of times you see with some of the kings isn't to go to God in prayer, but rather to make an alliance with a neighboring nation, to put their trust in something else or someone else, rather than humbly come to God. And we read, and this I will read from Isaiah chapter 37, verses 14 through 20, Hezekiah's response. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from the from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. So see, Hezekiah, what he does is he goes to the most effective weapon outside of the scriptures that he has. He called upon the omnipotent God whom he and the nation of Judah were in covenant with to deal with the wicked ruler. And listen to how God responds. So continuing in verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, hear that, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And then Isaiah, God through the prophet Isaiah goes on to list some things in regards to Sennacherib. And then we see 
Moving to verse 33, this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. And he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. And he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. So we see Hezekiah prays. God responds and God answers his prayer and has and deals with the king of Assyria. You know, Queen Mary of Scots, she was um, reputed to have said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Well, why? Well, because see, she understood what the Apostle James says in chapter 5 of his epistle that the prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. She understood that a person in relationship with God, with the God of the universe, is and is constantly coming to him in prayer is far more dangerous than an army. And we see that the king of Assyria found that out the hard way. Now, someone may ask, but JP, if God is sovereign over all things and his will is ultimately what will be accomplished, how can you say that our prayers have any ability to affect change? So I want you to hear this because I, I, I thought that um, he sums it up pretty well. Um, this is from John Frame. Now, of course, prayer doesn't change the eternal plan of God. And that is true. But within that eternal plan are many plans for means and ends. God ordains that crops will grow, but not without water and sun. He ordains that people will be saved, but ordinarily not without the teaching of the word. And he ordains that we will have everything we truly need, but not without prayer. God's eternal plan has determined that many things will be achieved by prayer, and many things will not be achieved without prayer. See, what John Frame writes here is very important for us to understand, especially us within the Reformed community. God not only ordains the ends, but also the means. We know that we can't alter the eternal and unchangeable plan of God, but we do know that within the eternal and unchangeable plan of God are many things that are being accomplished through the means which God provides. And one of those means is prayer. Thankfully, God has not told us every single thing that he has decreed. So, see, we really can't hide behind that as our excuse for not praying. We know what he has revealed to us. But as we are told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Therefore, we do not need to bother ourselves with those things that are hidden from us. We see in his revealed will that we are to pray in order for us to receive many of those things which we desire. Therefore, what we must do is obey God 
and pray and trust that God will answer. Charles Hodge, former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, he wrote this. If it be unreasonable to say, if it be foreordained that I should live, it is not necessary for me to eat. It is no less unreasonable for me to say, if it be foreordained that I should receive any good, it is not necessary for me to ask for it. So in other words, no one would use God's eternal decree as a reason to not eat. No one would say, well, God has ordained that I live. So if I don't eat, I'm going to live anyways. If I die, it's only according to the decree of God. No, that would be silly. Everyone knows that in order to eat, as God decrees, one of the means by which you survive is by eating. Likewise, to avoid prayer because you can't change the will of God is to avoid one of the means by which God accomplishes his will through answering those prayers. Now, being that one of the means that God uses to accomplish his will is by our prayers, see, that ought to motivate and encourage us to pray because we know that our prayers, if they line up with his will, will be answered and that amazing things can be accomplished by them. We do not need to pray with doubt in our hearts. We can pray, we can be confident and trust that God will answer us. Going back to James letter, James chapter one, verses five through eight. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I am intentionally emphasizing this point because I know that all of you here are reformed in your theology. So I'm not that concerned that anyone here is going to start deviating into word of faith heresy. Also, myself and Jason, we have spent time discussing the eternal decree of God and his providence over all things. And if anyone has a question in regards to where we stand or if you forgot, I would ask that you go back to our lessons on chapter 3 and chapter 5 on the confession of faith because it is clear, it's evident. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That is true. That's not going to change. But with that understanding of God's control over all things must also be an understanding that God calls for us to pray. And he has clearly demonstrated that our prayers, when offered in faith, can affect change. Not that it will change his will, but that it can change our circumstances. So we don't need to be discouraged. Honestly, we ought to be encouraged because our God who rules the universe and is in relationship with us has given us an ability to communicate with him and offer our petitions unto him. He's also told us that he will not give us bad if we ask for good. He has given us examples in the scriptures of men like us who prayed for extraordinary things and received it. So take courage and know that there is power in prayer. It's not pointless. It is efficacious. So the next time that you're praying to God, trust and believe that he will answer your prayer and be prepared to see God's hand at work through your humble prayer that you offer with faith in him. So this concludes the lesson for today. I told Dr. Tabitha,